Hello and welcome to FilmNerds.com and our latest installment of the Back to the Movies podcast where we are breaking down the top 10 movies of 1983 and uh, today we're looking at number 6 on the list, War Games and, and uh, I think probably a, a highly anticipated one for me because I'm, I'm finally getting to watch a quality movie instead of something that I'm watching ironically. But uh, joining me for this podcast is um, somebody that, that has definitely been around the film nerds circle before. I don't know if we've ever actually had him on a podcast at any point, but that's a that's a crime if we haven't. But uh, our guest today is going to be Sam McDavid. He's a, uh, he's a local filmmaker here in Birmingham, Alabama. And, uh, and Sam, thanks for, thanks for joining me for this. Thanks for having me. And Sam, you were one of the first people I talked to about doing these these podcasts, and War Games was the one you immediately jumped onto. And can you just to, to help us out here? You're you're a little bit older than me, and you know, for for those who aren't aware, the sort of the purpose of this uh, of me setting out on this series in the first place was that 1983 was the year I was born, and so obviously I had seen very very few of these movies, and I certainly didn't grow up with with most of them, but. Can you kind of tell me what your experience is personally with war games? You know, like how old were you when you saw it, and uh, what did you, what, you know? What you think? What you thought of it? Stuff like that. I was what? Uh, what was the date that it came out? I was either ten or eleven, I guess, when it came out. And um, the official release date it was it was June third. So this was a summer movie. Okay, so I guess I was about to turn ten. So I was nine actually, um, and. Um, I, I remember just, I was a computer nerd at the time. I was a huge computer nerd. I had my uh, Commodore VIC-20 with, with 5K of RAM and, and an expansion pack that took it up to 8K, which is just uh, just meager, like, you know, it's the most meager amount of RAM you could possibly did, did you, have and still. Did you buy the War Games game for your Commodore when it was when it was released? No, I didn't, um, because I think I couldn't afford a disk drive at the time. That's how, that's how sort of pathetic I was. But um, I wanted to, I wanted to. I watched it over and over and over again. It was, it was both a, um, a really sort of, uh, it, it was like they were making a movie that was just speaking to me and my computer nerdness, and at the same time, very unsettling, and uh, you know, got me thinking at nine years old, like what. What if we're gonna all die tomorrow? <laughs> you you know, disturb nine-year-old. <laughs> right, right, and I still carry that feeling with me today. Whenever, whenever anybody talks about apocalyptic stuff, it's like it's like that same war games feeling comes back. Well, well, I, I'm, we're definitely going to get into that as we talk about this because because that's kind of what struck me about about this movie is is in a way how dark it is for a movie that at some at some parts feels like a really sort of poppy movie but um yeah the, the whole first act is is really light and fun and yeah. oh hey we're getting they, they, the dad's making jokes about corn and whatnot you've got <laughs> you've got little light comedic moments and then it just gets really really um when, when when you know when he's talking about the dinosaurs and how we're gonna just be extinct and you know you've got the the movie the 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 film of the dinosaurs right. playing over his face it's it's just it it just takes you to a whole different place that you didn't expect. Yeah, and you know, I think it's it's uh, it's interesting that this movie seems to have that kind of dual personalities because one of the things that that you'll read about in the in the full review that we're going to put up on the website is this movie had kind of a a divided production history. First of all, it was a long long time in the making and and I think the sort of the original screenplay idea was written uh, in the in the late '60s, early '70s, so I mean, this was actually pre-computers as a story idea, but uh, grew into uh, grew into this story about sort of computers and computer hacking, which was a very new idea. It was it was not something that um, that was commonplace in movies like it like it would be now. And you know, really, the things that we see Matthew Broderick doing in this movie are are probably for the time they were very timely. This this movie actually. Um, coined a, a very common computer phrase, which is something I learned researching this. The, the term firewall was actually invented by this movie. Did you did you know that, Sam? 
I guess in its in its application to computers, you're saying, right? Uh, right. Obviously, that means something else. Right. But its its application to a, a computer network security uh, that that is mentioned at some point in this movie, and that's actually the first time that term was ever used in that application. So, um, so this you know this was a movie that was um, definitely ahead of the curve when it came to computer uh, you know computer science things like that, um, but. Like, like I was talking about, it kind of has this dual nature because it, it began its life as, uh, you know, as a movie that wasn't necessarily about computers, and it, and, and it was more about the idea of this sort of older scientist trying to, you know, who's sort of depressed, trying to pass on knowledge to this young whippersnapper, uh, and and the the Professor Falcon character is is really the guy who this movie was built around that that's the character that uh was sort of the original idea and it was supposed to be sort of a Stephen Hawking-esque character and believe it or not uh the original idea was that John Lennon was going to play Professor Falcon really yeah and and it uh you know he was apparently interested in it he was interested in this idea of making this movie about uh, you know, kind of the futility of nuclear warfare and and how it could you know how it could all end up, and so uh, obviously didn't materialize soon enough for John Lennon to be involved in the project, and um, you know it, it began actually filming with a different director, with a guy a guy named Martin Brest, who um, you know has had kind of a, a mixed filmmaking career but didn't didn't work out and a lot of people say that the stuff that Martin Brest filmed was very dark and and that the film actually sort of changed its tone when John Badham uh, yeah, there's, came in. There's a definite tonal shift um within the movie as we discussed before. Um but I would be interested to know which bits were done by um the not bad him, but the other guy you mentioned, Martin Brest. Yeah, you know, Brest. I don't know specifically what he filmed. I do know that John, that from what I've read, uh, one of the things that was mentioned was that John Badham um, came in to film those early scenes that are up in uh, the Matthew Broderick character David's bedroom, where you know he and Ali Sheedy are on the computer, and it's supposed to be lighthearted. You know, it's supposed to be sort of uh, a little bit, you know. A little bit, sort of teenage, teenage whimsy, a little bit, and and supposedly that he he brought a lot of that uh, lightheartedness to those scenes. And John Badham was was a guy who, for for those who don't know, he he directed Saturday Night Fever, was probably what he would be most famous for. He did another another movie in '83 that we've already reviewed in this series called Blue Thunder. But um, and and by the way, Martin Badham is a, a Birmingham, Alabama native. So filmnerds.com salutes you john badham wow as is he um maybe one day you'll have him on to uh to speak firsthand about i would love to do a john badham i would love to do a john badham interview that would be awesome (laughs) if uh i guess if you could track down somebody who knows somebody yeah well we may have to look into it you know uh, quick quick note and then i'll move on from this but supposedly the uh the dance floor for, for Birmingham natives, will, this will mean something to Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard this all Saturday, my life. Yeah, the dance floor in Saturday Night Fever is supposedly uh, based on a, the floor at a, at a very swanky, very popular sort of institution in Birmingham called The Club. And uh, there, there's – if you've ever been to The Club, you, you could see the floor where this is supposedly inspired that And, that and you can't call it The Club. You have, to, you have to say The Club. That's right. The club. People, people won't know what you're talking about if you say the. Right. Well, I, I want to – so, I mean, that's a little bit of the backstory of kind of what's going on here. But I want to I want to actually get into, you know, the movie itself. And let's, let's talk about what's going on in here and, and what we like. And the first thing that I think always you'd have to mention with this movie to me, this opening sequence, this sort of pre-credits sequence – uh, where we're following these two guys going down into the bunker, and it's basically setting up the the premise of the movie. And and the two guys, uh, oh, I'm sure we're not famous at the time. It's it's Michael Madsen, who people would know from Reservoir Dogs and Kill Bill, and uh, and John Spencer, who's also a really well respected actor, probably best known for being on The West Wing. But Sam, talk about that opening sequence a little bit, and 
I guess just kind of what it brings to the movie just right out of the gate. Yeah, and 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 this is the this is the turn your key, sir. Right. Sequence. Yeah. Um, they um, it really. I I wonder if that wasn't a, a a segment that was shot by that guy, the the other director that was whose name keeps escaping me. Martin Brest. Martin Brest, because it's very, very just sort of tonally. Um, it 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 sets the tone for what's to come although you take a you take a huge detour before you get back to that you know it's like look we're very very close to this this is how easy it would be for the the entire world to to be succumb to to nuclear war now please enjoy the adventures of this little 17 year old kid right, <laughs> right. <laughs> so so it it just immediately just sort of you know puts you on the edge of your seat and then you sort of relax a little bit and there's some characters developed and whatnot and then you know gradually you're sort of drawn back into that into that same place that that they established originally yeah and you know i i think i think it is definitely the when we go when we come back out to the the matthew broderick stuff it's almost like we're waiting on uh you know we we've been clued in at this point of where this movie's going and you know, I think I enjoy watching the the sort of school stuff. You know, the the school and and home scenes. But I'm glad they. It does feel like they get through it pretty quickly. The one the one thing I really probably enjoy the most out of those early scenes is, you know, Ali Sheedy is so likable in this movie, and I don't I, I don't really feel that way about all of those uh, Brat Pack actresses. And I've really – I've seen some movies where I don't like Ali Sheedy that much. But she's so uh, – I, I think her chemistry with Matthew Broderick in this movie, they really seem like they're having fun. It's not um, over the top, you know. It's more it's – sort of, it's sort of innocent 15-year-old crushy stuff, you know. It's, it's never – it never really feels like – I don't think they would ever do that with teenagers in a movie today. I think they would take it to a, a much sexier place immediately, you know. Right, right, and and you know I had a I had a crush I had a huge crush on Ali. She uh, she's so likable. She's the, the audience surrogate um, for all the audience members who aren't necessarily complete, you know, computer nerds or or whatever. But um, they just they make her so sympathetic and just so lovable that you you can't really help have such a crush that every uh, every role she plays from that point on is going to be a huge disappointment <laughs> even other computer based movies like short circuit yeah yeah right right short circuit that yeah, kind of but not 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 to the extent that what did short circuit come after war games i guess it did oh yeah yeah she was she was significantly older in that i mean if you if you go back and uh, did did you, I, I'm assuming you probably rewatched this fairly recently, but she. Uh, I did not, and I, the reason I didn't is because I wanted to be able to say that I still remember the code to launch the missiles. Oh wow, we're gonna uh, test you on that later. All right. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, she's pretty young in this movie. It was for for somebody who's seen. I did watch a lot of Short Circuit when I was a kid. That was, that was probably one of the few '80s movies that I saw a lot of, and. Uh, um, yeah, she's she is sort of remarkably younger in this than she is in a lot of the other stuff that I've ever seen her in. So, but 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 she's great though. I mean, she's she's super likable as is Matthew Broderick, but that's not a surprise, you know. He's just sort of that's his thing, you know. Matthew Broderick is the guy that uh it's impossible to cast him as an unlikable character, I think. Definitely. I uh I, and I guess the the pinnacle of his likability would be uh Ferris Bueller, but I I I kind of Relate. I related him much to him much more in in this movie than than in Ferris Bueller. Obviously, I mean he's he's an outcast. He's a he's a nerd. You know, he's he's somebody who uh, who isn't like the most popular kid in school. But yet he's uh, you know he's very resourceful and he's got all these great ideas. Not that I was very resourceful as a kid. <laughs> you never you never had it uh, you never had it in you to go. Uh, Use your computer skills to get a girl like he does, basically. No, no, I didn't. And I never had the resources. To go change your grades. To go change the – by the way, the password uh, to get into the school's computer, and this is easy to remember, was pencil. 
Nice. Um, and right. I've actually used Pencil before and forgotten that I had used it and never been able to log back into things <laughs> again. Um, but uh, yeah, but th- that whole that whole part of the the movie was was just very sort of. It, they did a great job of endearing characters to the audience that they may not necessarily be able to because at the time computers weren't as ubiquitous as they are now you know Mm -hmm. it it was much more uh sort of niche thing and they people were just starting to get them into their homes you know you had people with apple twos and commodores but not everybody used them for everything and 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 only really the the nerdy kids um were the ones who really got into them so um, it wasn't exactly, you know, he's not exactly an everyman protagonist, uh, but they did a great job of setting him up as one through that whole Ali Sheedy relationship and stuff like that. Yeah, and there's actually the the sort of, I guess, the scene where they meet each other in class. There was one thing that sticks out to me. I might even drop this clip into uh, into the review, but... You know, there's there's this joke that they set up where they're you know everybody's giggling in class basically, and the teacher is writing something on the on the board about you know who who first introduced the idea, and I'll, I'll see if you remember this joke, Sam. Who first introduced the idea of asexual reproduction? And uh, and Matthew Broderick has a little quip at that line. Do you re- do you remember what he says? Um. Oh man, I. <sighs> But didn't he say it was like it was it was you or something that was said, talking to the he teacher? Says, he says your wife. Your wife. That's right. And yeah. The, and the, what, the thing that's funny about this to me though is the teacher gets so mad. Uh, you have to watch the clip. Oh yeah, you know? yeah. I remember. It's I, like I, unreasonable. I yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's just he's like he's about to kill this kid because of that joke. It's uh, it's intolerable. Yeah, but uh, I mean basically. Basically, after we after we sort of get through uh, the sort of discovery scenes, I guess where we're starting to figure out what's going on, and and uh, you know Matthew Roderick and Ali Sheedy end up sort of looking more into this uh, into this mystery, and they end up finding the the long thought dead Professor Falcon out on this island somewhere. Who, who's beautifully, beautifully portrayed by John Wood. I, I became such a John Wood fan after that after that movie. What were what Sam, take me through because for somebody somebody today I think John Wood's probably not a super familiar name. What what are some other things that John Wood has done over the years, I guess, since this movie? Well, um he did Lady Hawk, which I don't even think I've seen. But uh, I know I've heard of Lady Hawk though. That's that's one of those that it's just kind of conceptually so weird that it's. I think everybody's heard of it. He was Whippy Goldberg's love interest in Jumpin' Jack Flash. Okay, uh, yeah. which was a. Um, I don't know if if uh, you remember that or not. No, but I'm familiar with it. Yeah, it's well worth uh, checking out. Um, it, it appears he was in the remake of Sabrina, which I didn't know. Um. You know that sort of ends my my John Wood. <laughs> I mean, he's been in other things, but but um, those are the main like sort of things that I remember him for. And um, for some reason, I thought he had died, but apparently, he is still with us, okay. which is which is nice. Um, I'm just looking over his uh, his, his filmography, his IMDb page. Yeah, okay. um, he was. Uh, it looks like he was in. The Purple Rose of Cairo, actually, too, which, yeah, which I, I have sure not he must, seen. He, he must have been one of the movie stars, uh, or one of the one of the characters in the movie. But um, uh, I guess I guess I should I should clarify my statement by saying that I, I wasn't so much a John Wood fan as a Professor Falcon as portrayed <laughs> a John Wood fan. Right. <laughs> well, you know, uh, you talked about this early, but uh, basically, the, the sort of the initial scene where we meet him is this super. Dark, you know. Up to this point, it's been kind of a fun little mystery. We're tracking. Yeah, it's down. been a little adventure, and and they've you know they've done cool things that actually work, like the twenty six hundred hertz thing with the with the phone. And um, I mean that's all based on real hacks that uh, that that people have done. And and he, and, and he breaks and, out of the um, the the sort of holding cell with a with a tape recorder, basically records the touchstone and stuff. 
Right. All sort of a fun little adventure, you know, smart kid uh, um, on the run thing. And then they get to Professor Falk and, and, and it just becomes really, really scary. Yeah, so he's, he's rolling this, this speech. Uh, and he's rolling this, this footage of dinosaurs in the background, uh, sort of like becoming extinct, I guess, while he's giving them this, this speech about uh, basically the extinction of humanity and how it's inevitable. And, and it's um, all playing out over his very, very grave face. Right. And, and, and they're just sort of sitting in the shadow, backlit in the shadows, just being and, scared out of their minds. And the kids, the poor kids are talking about, you know, I'm only 17. And, and I, think, I think at one point. Yeah, the scariest thing is his resignation. Just, you know, yeah. we learned that we learned. Should, should, we, should we give away anything? I don't know. Well, yeah, the, no, this, this, this is definitely not a spoiler free podcast. But one of, one of the things he says that I thought was like a little bit extra dark. And and just just made me kind of reel back a little bit is uh, he he says something about uh, you know Ali Sheedy's basically saying you know I'm only 17 I haven't really you know I'm not ready to die yet and he says well I guess we could delay it and let you have a son and watch him die and I'm just like man what a what a downer yeah. you know all yeah. of a sudden. <laughs> but, and and he had uh, Joshua the computer that is that is causing. The whole um, war games thing to play out. I guess should we basically uh, Broderick hacks into this government computer, which was originally a computer created by Professor Falcon. He hacks in. It's it's called Joshua after Professor Falcon's deceased son. Right. And um, and so you know we learn that his whole uh, resignation to 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 the whole. Global thermonuclear war thing is because he's lost his son and basically given up on life. He's basically depressed, and, and so yeah, as a result, depressed. he's not going to stop his computer from potentially causing a, right. a nuclear apocalypse. But then he's given something to think about, and he sees in Matthew Broderick and I guess Ali Sheedy as well a, a, the, a glimmer of the uh, what what made him love his own son originally, right. And um, and then you know they they last minute come to try to save the day. As yeah, it were. and let me ask you about that because I know I mean I'm picking it apart a little bit. I mean, it's not really addressed. I mean, it's it's really sort of everybody's just happy, I guess that that we're not going to die. But but I mean, isn't you know isn't Professor Falcon kind of liable for all of this happening in the end. I mean, there's not really any mention of him being hauled off to jail for endangering the lives of, you know, three quarters of the planet, basically, in what he's done. I mean, it's sort of all forgiven because they end right. up fixing it. And and just and the fact that they they never tried to contact him to begin with. Right. Like <laughs> right. you know, like something goes wrong. No, they all knew he was out. alive. Yeah. Yeah. The 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 top inside guys did. Right. Yeah, and speaking of the top inside guys, uh, I actually think there's some pretty good performances there. Oh, which is, Bar- Barry Corbin is fantastic. As is, um, uh, what's his face? Dab- uh, Dabney Coleman is. Dabney is kind Coleman of the, is. He's kind of is, the bad guy, so to speak. He's the guy who's really, I guess the uh, he was Falcon's uh, assistant, and he's he's got he's the guy who's really advocating for letting the computers control everything when it comes to to nuclear arms. And and you know even in the in the tensest moments of the of when they're trying to stop Joshua, you know, when they've got the big board and the tic tac toe thing, there there are a little there are a few little comedic moments where the you know the one oh play 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 X in the corner play X in the corner yeah, or whatever right. he says. <laughs> no, um, yeah, I think he says he says X in the center square. Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> Matthew Broderick's like, yeah, I got it. <laughs> um, but. Uh, but but you know Dabney Coleman um, and, and there are no really um, I guess he, I guess Dabney Coleman as a, is as close as uh, a heavy or an antagonist as you would as you would have it's all sort of a man versus nature uh, type thing but um, he does a great job and he's very likable as that character at the same time as right. much as he's he's he- sort of a, a pain in the ass he's. He, he he pulls it off in a very likable way. And again, I think I think there's a there's a lot about this movie that's unconventional for a big hit. I mean, for one, it's it's a very brainy 
movie for for a movie that made so much money. It's really dealing with a lot of complicated issues, and it's a it's a there's a lot of talking. Even though there's there's a, there's big sets, it's not a stunt heavy movie. It's not a um, you know it's not a gimmicky movie. It's a movie that is definitely about something. Yeah, and not it, at all. It's for for as as um as as big as I'm sure the budget was. It it was all. It's it's a lot more cerebral than anything that would that would um, I guess be on that same blockbuster level. Yeah, and I think one of the things that that does stick out about it that's non that's not conventional about it. I feel like that Dabney Coleman character would have been turned into more of a villain if it was written, you know, in the sort of yeah they would they Armageddon would just would more formulaic and and whatnot well he would have ended up getting electrocuted by the computer or something you know and and just in the in the midst of doing something really douchey that would have like made him a lot of money you know right or at the very least um he would have come off as a as a as a sort of buck turgidson character because uh, let's face it this there there are plenty of nods to to strange love as far as sort of for sure yeah and and um the big board and, and, you know, you've got the general there and whatnot. So, yeah. And I think, you know, the Barry, Barry Corbin's character, the general is, is he's definitely cartoonish, you know, and I think he sort of fits, I think he's a little bit of a callback to Dr. Strange love for sure. Um, and actually, you know, one of the, I was looking this up just to make sure that I was right, but one of the, um, one of the, the sort of nameless, just gaggle of government men who are sort of involved in making these decisions at the end. One of them is actually uh, Principal Strickland from Back to the Back to the Future. So that's definitely worth a shout out there. He yeah, gets, I, I noticed lines. that actually. I did notice that in in that um, in that uh, in that thing. And I think that when I saw Back to the Future for the first time, you said that's which the guy came from out Morgan. after. I was like, oh, that's the guy from. Right. From war games, like everybody, my my entire frame of reference for most of these people, with <laughs> a very few exceptions, Dabney Coleman and and a few others, is war games. Like that is the movie that I I sort of, you know, that's my perspective on who these people are. Can I tell you another very small part in this movie that's that really I enjoyed watching is the the actor's name is Irving Metzman. Uh, and the character's name is Richter, but basically this this is this is this character who is like this sort of ridiculous, effeminate Jewish computer scientist who's always sort of running around with his hands in the air. Yes, and men Irving Metzman's been in a, a a million things. Yeah, he's kind of a character actor, I guess. That's that's uh, you, you've, I'm sure he's been in some Woody Allen movies, by the way. But um, you know, he's. He's. I think he's very funny in this movie, and uh, I, the one line that I sort of sticks out that I remember is uh, towards the end. They're sort of trying to figure out. They, they've all been locked out of Joshua, and they're trying to figure out how to get back in. And Dabney Coleman's talking on the phone with him, and you only hear one side of the conversation. And the Irving Met- Metzman character says something like, "You think I haven't tried that already?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, like he's a wife being nagged. Or right. Something. Right. <laughs> Um, it appears he was in Annie too, by the way, as Mr. Bundles. I think that's worth mentioning. Hang on, I've got a, a, one of the world's foremost Annie experts here. Uh, who is Mr. Bundles from Ann from Annie, Francesca? Oh, he's the laundry guy. He's the laundry guy. I'm yes, hearing, the okay. laundry guy. That's I remember Mr. that. Bundles. Yes. Okay. So played by Irving Metzman. Okay. That's, remember that she tries to sneak out the laundry. Right, she tries to sneak out in the laundry. Yeah, and that okay. That's who Mr. Bundles yeah, he's the very nervous, uh, mustachioed. Okay. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, it's just good. It's good that I always have, you know, that resource here when I'm recording here in the film nerd studio that I can right. call out to the to an Annie expert if necessary. We uh, also also a Yentl expert, I guess, if we ever need that as well. Oh, really? That should be your next. <laughs> what year was that? No, I've done I have done Yentl. Sam. Oh, okay. That has been in the series, unfortunately. <laughs> I, I haven't I haven't seen as many or I haven't listened to as many um Well there was no podcast on it. That was earlier in the series, but uh ah, okay. yeah, anyone who's interested could go back and read the Yentl review in, in Back to the Movies. I believe it was in the teens. So um but yeah, I, I just just moving on 
quickly to um, the uh, one thing that I really want to hit on here is the the ending of this movie and how it all wraps up um, because I, I feel like it's it's definitely it's definitely got a point and it's definitely uh, a point that is made in a kind of a twilight zoney almost kind of way you know in, in the way that it sort of neatly wraps up I guess but uh, Tell me, tell me, kind of how this ending strikes you, especially today, because you said it, it had a big impact on you, obviously, when you first saw this movie. But do you feel like the ending, the, the sort of wrapping it all up with with a single line, I guess, which is sort of what they do in in uh, in this movie, where they say the only the only winning move is not to play. You know, they sort of wrap up the moral in one line. D- does that feel a little on the nose to you today? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. And and um, you know the the other thing is that uh, again tonally, you have this huge collective sigh of relief that everyone breathes after after Joshua has that realization, and you know everybody's it's a it's a happy moment and everybody's cheering and it's sort of uh, you know it's kind of sweet at the same time because even even the Dabney Coleman character is sort of. Uh, formed a bond with 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 Matthew Broderick and yeah, John Wood is there, yeah, yeah, and um and and so it's this it's this big sort of happy tender moment, and then the the credits come up and this just ridiculously sad music starts playing. Like, <laughs> well, I mean, we're still just one step away from nuclear war, so go back to your lives and ponder that. You know, I mean, it's it's just sort of it it's so like you know well. It, it's, we're still on the brink. What can you do? Yeah, and I look, the, the the aren't the credits like red or something? Well, it's, 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 it's got, got that this, digital uh, like digital readout look to them. Um, but you know, yeah, it just makes you feel so like oh god, I'm still. I mean, it is it is it is full of dread. I mean, it's yeah, but you know, it's. Um, and it's it's like a harmonica's playing. Yeah, the score and, is you know, a little like, bit. It's a little still bit. it's so sad, like. Yeah, I mean it's it's not a happy ending because you still have to leave the theater and 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 worry about bombs, you know. But worry I think, about po- I think wolf. people were worried about it, and I think that's that's oh, yeah. the difference. Is today it's hard for me to watch uh, this movie, and there have been several other movies that I've watched in this in this countdown so far that are, are very very heavily Cold War influenced, and it's really hard for me, uh, even as somebody who lived through. You know, uh, September 11th and this sort of last 10 years, I guess, where there was some of that angst. I, I don't think it could ever compare to what must have been going on uh, in the Cold War, even in the 80s, where it probably wasn't quite as uh, tense as it had been at other times. Um, and, and, you know, Sam, you were you were old enough that you were thinking about those things. Oh, yeah. Something, after- somebody like me could never really understand what it must have been like to – have that hanging over you and kids asking their parents about, you know, what happens if, if Russia, you know, presses the button or whatever, you know? After I saw war games, I would spend any night where I couldn't, where I was just alone with my thoughts lying in bed, I would sit there and worry about the inevitability of a nuclear holocaust. Any any night, and it would really, really cause me a lot of anxiety, just night after night after night. And, you know, normally, I, I think that's why I watch so much TV, just to keep my mind off of um, worrying about stuff like that, because that's how profoundly this movie affected me. And every time I would rewatch it, it would sort of reinforce that 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 fear. But it was, it was very, very palpable and something that... Uh, you know, that stayed with me for years and years. And like I said, even to this day, if people are talking about some big catastrophic, you know, like, like they call, they, they talk about the new Madrid fault line is, is supposed to rupture and, and drown the entire state of Louisiana. Um, you know, like I still get like that sort of, I don't want to go in a, in a mass, uh, cataclysmic event, you know, it's right. Uh, yeah, I so, mean Matthew Broderick has a line in the movie at one point where he says, uh, "I wish I didn't know about any of this," and I'm sure that's kind of that. Yeah, that, that's it's exactly. That they have kids yeah. in this movie because that is kind of 
you know, you got to think that the teenage mentality must have been like, man, why, why am I having to worry about this stuff and deal with this stuff? You know, I should be, I should be living like the, the, the teenagers in the, in the, you know, in the fifties and sixties, basically, who just, Oh, the you know, duck cover kids. <laughs> yeah, but they but they didn't worry about it. I don't think. You know, I, I really. I, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. uh, I think it didn't feel like a real thing to them. I, I during the 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 Cuban Missile Crisis, I think it was a very. I think it did sure. feel like a very real thing. Um, apart from that, maybe not. But um, you know, as, as a nine year old, it's just like I, I think I would have rather seen. I, I wasn't allowed to watch rated R movies or horror movies at the time. I, I think I would have been much better off having seen a horror movie than I was with this, with which let, left me almost justifiably disturbed for years and years. Well, you know, I think it's, I think it's, this is all, this is all, this whole podcast is about therapy for me. <laughs> this is just Sam <laughs> on the couch, right? <laughs> but no, I mean, I, I think one of the things that uh, there was, there's another line sort of towards the end that I think maybe what what sort of jumped out to me was I, I think this this era I, I'm starting to get watching this movie of just how you know like like you're talking about how much angst must have been going on in the audience and I think it was probably maybe even the only thing really comparable to it was pre World War II where people were pretty sure that there was bad stuff coming and uh, there's a line in this that happened to you know, remind me of a line from uh, one of my favorite Charlie Chaplin movies. Um, uh, I knew you were going to, I was going to bring this up if the, you didn't. The Great Dictator, where, yeah. where, where he, uh, some, somebody is, somebody's talking to, um, to the general, to, to Barry Corbin, and he says, you know, you're listening to a machine, but you don't have to act like one. And, uh, and, and basically what, what, what reminded me of that movie was there is a line there, Chaplin is talking about, you know, saying we need to act like we're human beings and and not like machines, which was a big deal to him. He he thought that the the fact that the world was becoming sort of industrialized and everything was being relying on machines was making it easier for things like the concentration camps to happen in Germany. You can you can uh, you can look at the processes and the automation of everything and say, well, it's not really human beings on the other end of this. And uh, you know, I feel like. It almost was that that pre World War II thing was almost a little bit of fear of modernization. It was sort of fear of kind of like fear of technology in a way, and yeah. that's definitely what's going on. I mean, War Games is is if you take the basic premise, uh, it's the same basic premise that the Terminator movies are built off of. It's just that War Games takes it seriously, and the Terminator turns it into this sort of fantastical, ridiculous sci fi thing. Right, right. Which is that you know if 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 the computer you know just sort of this this lack of understanding of how far computers could be taken to you know and and you know the, this this sort of fear that computers are going to become so uh, complex and we're going to become so reliant on them that we're not even going to be able to make our own decisions about things like that, things about war, you know. Yeah, and I remember at the time, um, you know, there were several like, like during sweeps month or whatever, the news stations would come out because it was a very popular movie. You know, it, it was it was I mean number six grossing for the year. So um, the 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 news stations would be you know like how war games could actually happen right. tonight at ten or whatever. Sure. So so that that did nothing, absolutely nothing to allay anyone's fears. Um, which I, I was probably a lot more paranoid than than most, but um, you know, at, at a certain point, um, if you just look through through throughout history, th- there's been plenty of stuff to be paranoid about just with, with, with through, just throughout time. So yeah, in a, in a way, worse than nuclear war because you know I, I guess it's never the threat's never totally gone but we can say having having the cold war as officially i think we can safely say that's all over with at this point um you know yeah, i think sure, we but- can we can look back at it and say you know what it kind of did work out that way it worked out the way that it works out in this movie which is to say that um because everybody knows what happens if they start it it'll never happen and so 
you know, right. there's there's certainly a lot more complexities involved in it today. But when you were talking about two states, you know, having this standoff, and everybody was, ju- I'm not saying people weren't justified in being nervous about this, but you know, the the logic of the situation did ultimately dictate that, you know, it wasn't ever going to happen, and that's and that's really why it didn't, you know. Right, and I guess. Um... I guess in hindsight, you, you, we can say that because we were dealing with uh, two uh, two powers that weren't governed by uh, irrational, crazy folks. But but there have been plenty of irrational, crazy folks throughout history sure. who haven't had that that technology at their disposal. So, you know, what's to say that at some point, you know, that 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 the worry should all be over? You know, it's it's just. The, the, we we hug we hug Dabney Coleman and those creepy credits come up while that harmonica plays. That, and yeah, we, and we've got a lot to think about. Yeah, as we leave the theater and uh, and you know you mentioned by the way the the sort of idea of everybody panicking about like well is, could this could this really happen at NORAD and you know I think that's that's one of the funny things about this reading about it is uh, supposedly you know. Uh, basically the filmmakers were not allowed to see anything in the real NORAD. And so all, all the stuff that they've, that they've invented in this movie, all the, the sets and, and all the technology, it was basically just kind of, uh, you know, the, the dream version of it. It's probably what we'd all like to believe it's like. Uh, and actually, suppo- according to IMDb, and I don't know if you can verify this or not through there, but, uh, that NORAD set at the time was the most expensive set ever built for a film. Yeah, I I I, uh, I remember something about that. Um, and it's because they but, couldn't have real computer screens. I mean, something like that. Th- those those giant screens, uh, the technology for that didn't actually exist. You couldn't get high resolution digital images on a screen that big. So they had to sort of invent technology to do that. So it wasn't some sort of projection? Um, no, it was a projection. The problem is you can't project anything that big and still have it look good. And still have the, yeah. The because it's so low resolution uh, when you're photographing a computer screen, basically. Well, well they, did, they did a great, they did a fantastic job. Whoever, whoever did the animation and stuff like that. And again, they, they, you get to watch all the 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 bombs go off on the faces of the, the people watching the screens which sort of harkens back to the the dinosaur scene um and i i, I think that's a great uh directorial technique you know we just we we see the lights dancing over these people's faces as they they watch in shock and horror at at, at what they could be in for yeah and it's it's um you know i, I think I think the one of one of the quotes basically from from the stuff that I was reading was that uh, the the people at NORAD saw this movie and, and you know they did give tours but they didn't tour kind of the the control room like they like they do in this movie. Oh, by the way, uh, I don't want to I hate to interrupt no, but I'll forget. Um did you notice and it makes perfect sense now that you say that uh Martin Brest was from Birmingham but well, no, the, John the, John Badham was. John Badham was yeah. okay. Well, the uh, the people taking the tour um, were from Birmingham. That's right. Yeah. It says greetings, uh, distinguished visitors from Birmingham. That's right. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm positive that is a that is a sort of little reference thrown in there by John Badham. Yeah, and I I never I always thought it was a lot of fun at the time, but I never knew that the that the director was from here. We don't okay, get mentioned. We don't get mentioned in movies very often. No, we so don't. Yeah. We don't. Except stay hungry, which I'm sure you have to do a, a podcast on it. Okay, some yeah, well, yeah. I mean, uh, basically, what was going on after this movie was so popular that you know, basically, the attendance at NORAD started to go up for their tours, and people start asking to see the computer room, and they start asking to see the control room and stuff like that, and they say, you know, we really don't show that on the tour. Um, but even even though they didn't show it, uh, they sort of basically started to get embarrassed because they had 1960s technology in NORAD at the time that this movie came out. And uh, supposedly uh, 
They spent a lot of money to upgrade. Yeah, to, supposedly this movie sort of was responsible for upgrading a lot of the computer uh, technology in in NORAD and in actually uh, one of the details that that is worth noting is in this movie it sort of portrays NORAD as that's where they run everything in a war situation where there's missiles being launched. It's all happening in NORAD, and that's not actually what happens. There's actually a, a separate um, sort of institution uh, called uh, the Strategic Air Command, which is, I think, referenced in this movie, but that's actually where this would be happening. NORAD is essentially, uh, my understanding is it's just sort of where they're watching uh, radar signals. They're sort of watching uh, everything that's coming in and going out, but they're not actually making the, the calls and the decisions there, so... I think everybody's sort of th- this movie's probably pretty pretty responsible for NORAD be- becoming built up as this big, uh, you know, the sort of you know central command of of the American you know nuclear armaments. Basically, they do have. Uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, they do have a, a DEFCON uh, system, though. No, I think that is correct. I think the the DEFCON five through one. I, I I think that actually is a real thing. Yeah. All right. Well, Sam, before I let you go, uh, you you boasted that you've got the launch code by memory. Yes. From from Joshua that he figures out. Uh, this is the ten digit launch code that he figures out at the end of the movie. Yes, and uh, do you have a way to verify this? I've got it in front of me right okay. now. Okay. Yeah. So let's. Okay. Let's do and it. I haven't seen this movie in uh, at least six years, maybe and, a decade. An honor code that you are not on IMDb or Google right now. I'm not on uh, a, a page that that would show it to me or remind me of it. Okay. No. <laughs> okay. Well, let's let's give me the first three letters. Okay, the first three letters are C, P, E, and then there's there's four numbers. One seven zero four, and three three more letters. T K S. That is amazing, Sam. A ten digit letters and numbers code to launch nuclear weapons. I've also used that as a password over the years. Yeah, that's I, pretty I've... good. Now, if you can remember that, that's pretty. Uh, that that's that's pretty impressive, and I, I doubt. I mean, only the hardcorest of fanboys will ever crack that password. Uh, but surely somebody's written an algorithm, and they've just thrown that. I mean, if you're a nerd enough that you can write password cracking <laughs> right. algorithms, surely you've seen war games at least fifty times. And oh, by the way, um, we 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 never spoke about. I wish you could go back and insert this, but the uh, the the Eddie Deason scene. Um, at the beginning, which is another lighthearted scene where um, what's his face talks about putting all, in all the back doors. Um, he, they go oh, and they see. Deason is is the um, the. He plays Malvin. Uh, That's right. Yeah. And 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 it, and it and it's it, a little piece of trivia here. Um, and I don't know this from looking it up or anything. I just noticed. I just remembered this from back then. Eddie Deason's nickname name on Punky Brewster on the. TV show Punky Brewster was also Malvin. So I don't know if, you know, Punky Brewster exists. It's just a nerdy sounding name. To, in you know, the same, I, I'd like to think that Punky Brewster exists in the same continuum as <laughs> you know what? Games after he left his job at that whatever, wherever he was working, no, he got to work. No joke, at. Sam, and I'm not a Punky Brewster aficionado. I think there actually is a nuclear war themed episode of punky brewster i'm oh, I'm not kidding you i think there's an episode where she becomes overwhelmed with angst about the possibility of nuclear war yeah i wouldn't be surprised i, I would have liked at the time to have seen it and 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 how she was she was uh you know calmed down by her kindly old uncle or whatever that guy was <laughs> I always get that guy mixed up with uh, with Devin from uh, from Knight Rider. Just two very grandfatherly <laughs> gentlemen with with the same exact haircut and British accents. And then there's and then there's the guy from from uh, you know different strokes. There's just there yeah, was a lot was of Conrad there's Bain. a lot of Conrad sort of Bain. kindly old white men taking yeah. care of children that weren't yeah. theirs. Yeah, <laughs> that was big in the early '80s. Apparently, yeah, it was. I guess they're all. Although Conrad Bain wasn't as old as he appeared. I think he still might be alive, actually. Well, thanks for uh, 
thanks for going through this with me. I know this is a uh, this is obviously a movie that uh, means a lot to you, and I'm I'm glad. I wish I wish that I had uh, you know more friends, I guess, that were your age, Sam, because because I've gone through a lot of these movies and. Um, you know, especially especially the ones that I didn't podcast about. It's it's kind of odd how big a deal some of these movies were that uh, I just feel like my generation's never even heard of a lot of these 1983 movies that were fairly big hits. And uh, you know, I, I think it's you know it's really your generation's responsibility to keep the memory of of movies like uh, less popular movies, I guess, from this list alive. Movies like like Krull. And, uh, and, and, you know, th- there's another John Badham movie, Blue Thunder, from that year that, you know, these these are movies that were fun and that I can – I watch them and think, you know, uh, I would have loved seeing these movies back then. And I'm sure a lot of people did and, and had good memories of them, but it's people that are kind of from your generation and, and they're not movies that will really ever get talked about or maybe not even remembered, uh, you know, by, by later generations, but – Generation is that is that a, is that a half we're, we're word? Half, we're half ten years. Gener- we're half generations apart. Yeah. I mean, my brother's younger than you. <laughs> That's right. I don't mean to be. I don't mean to be portraying you as older than you are. But you know, look. I just threw my back out. <laughs> All right, go ahead. But, but you right. know, in this, I think especially when it comes to movies, I think um, it really is almost generational because you know somebody like me, I. I I grew up and sort of my first adult movie experience was something like Jurassic Park. Uh, and, and your first adult movie experience was something like War Games, you know. And, and even though I think we have a lot of the same – we have an overlapping sort of cultural experience, um, you know, a big part of me wanting to watch these 80s, these 1983 movies is – this is this is kind of a group of movies that I just missed out on. You know, I was just a little bit too young for these movies to make an impact on me, but they clearly inform a lot of the people who I'm friends with. Right, and it gives you a different it gives you a different perspective and 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 whatnot, and just sort of yeah, gives you a feel for the climate at the time that you came into existence. I, I was, guess. I was yeah, I was born into a, a world of a world of uh, a fear and. Right. <laughs> Well, thanks for uh, thanks for joining me for this podcast, Sam, and thanks for uh, sharing your your insight, and thanks for you know thanks for bearing your soul to us, really your your ten year old soul <laughs> to us. Well, thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. And if uh, if if you would like to be my therapist again, I'll, I'll happily <laughs> yeah I'll happily uh, come back. Well, if you have any angst, you know, about flash dance or anything like that, you can you can join us for that podcast if you want to. Yeah, the 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 backlit water bucket scene uh, <laughs> just twisted you forever. Spiraled me into a, 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 an anxiety-ridden fury for years. No, I, I'm sure uh, it's a lovely movie, but I haven't seen it. All right, thanks, Sam. So thank you.